Radio Mano Papachango. Hey Chris, Phil here. I'm sitting by the creek in this beautiful redwood forest where I live in Northern California, listening to the birds and watching the sun come up. I just got out of my hammock this morning. I'm about to go cook some acorns and then get to work inoculating mushroom logs. I love the podcast. I just listened to the Ryan Freisinger episode and that was amazing. So thank you. Hey, hey, how's it going guys? This is uh, Lucas. Um, I'm sitting next to a fjord in Norway right now. Um, I'm on a road trip with my with my three best friends through Norway, and we just uh, made a campfire, cooked some food, um, and we're about to eat it in a second. Um, I just want to say hi to everybody and. Yeah, I wanted to express my gratitude, first of all, for this podcast and um, second of all, for for all of the people listening to it and resonating with it. It really, really gives me, gives me a lot of hope. And um, yeah, it's, I think it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, yeah, all the best and hope to see you soon. Hey Chris, I'm sitting on the shores of Georgian Bay, which is just about in the middle of the province of Ontario, Canada, where I come every summer to um, fill the well and swim in kind of pretty cold water and generally get away from my regular job being a university professor in Montreal. I'm that even older than you listener who thinks that you and and your whole podcast community are pretty wonderful. And and I'd say to people, um, just, you know, travel every chance you get, because I did when I was younger, and I hope I do when I retire in five years again. And I think it's really, really good to keep moving. Thank you for what you do. Yo, yo, yo. Que paso? Tangential familia. Tangentialists. Tan- tangentialists. We'll get this. Anywho, much love, Chris Ryan. Thank you for your work. So I just want to share a quick little poem with you guys coming at you from Corvallis, Oregon. Check it out. I'm possessed like the Joker played by Heath Ledger Thinking in and out of the box of beat measures Started with primal urges of trying to seek pleasure Developed who I am, take it back to those three letters I am, feels like I always been Grew up in California, roaming in Oregon I am, a savage in the mix Relax in the abyss, tangentially we riff Thank you for those. If you'd like to do an introduction <clears throat> and send it to me, just record it on your phone. Um, keep it, you know, 20, 30 seconds, somewhere in that range, please. 
And uh, you can send it to me at intro at tangentiallyspeaking.com. And, um, you know, it's really cool that to hear the, the kind words that so many of you say in those. But don't worry about it. You don't, I, I don't want to just play a bunch of people, you know, saying how great I am and how great the podcast is because that gets old fucking fast, doesn't it? Um, but talk about yourself. Talk about what you're doing. Talk about what makes you cool and wonderful and part of this amazing world that we're living in. That's that's what I'm really interested in. So thank you for those. Intro at tangentiallyspeaking.com. And before getting into this episode, I just want to remind you, if you're in L.A. or anywhere in the vicinity of Southern California and you're free on December 4th, you might want to seriously consider coming to the Motherfucker Awards. It's taken off. Kyle is doing a lot of work and he is lining this shit up. It's going to be fantastic. We've got uh, Brendan Walsh, Jake Johansson, uh, Natasha Legero, Moshe Kasher. Uh, it's going to be fucking wild. My boy Simon Rex is going to be in the house. It's going to be a wild time. Um, Matt Taibbi is flying in to present one of the awards. I'm not going to go down the list of names, but it's going to be really fucking crazy and fun. And you will always remember that you were there for the first annual Motherfucker Awards honoring those companies that are doing the most outstanding work to fuck Mother Earth in 2018 you can get tickets at motherfuckerawards.com how's everybody doing out there tangentially speaking episode 253 i believe coming at you this is connor jones uh connor jones is a dude i met by chance in a restaurant in ojai maybe a year and a half ago and uh, he had just finished reading Sex at Dawn at the time, and we chatted for a while. He mentioned that he lived on um, a farm where he practiced uh, permaculture and taught permaculture. And I thought, well, that's interesting as fuck. I'd like to know more about that. So, uh, whatever it is now, a year and a half later, I finally got back up there and went to his place, and we sat down and recorded this podcast and his place is fantastic. It's like a little slice of paradise. All these flowering fruit trees. And he's got some animals there. And uh, a big pond with ducks in it. And just this whole... You know, it's like if humans took care of the earth. Like a lover or a child. Rather than ripping it to shit and tearing it apart like a dead thing um this is what this is what it would look like connor has set up an example of how we can live on the planet comfortably richly and without exploiting it uh so i hope you dig this episode uh, what else can I tell you? I'm, I'm in the Canyon. The fire season, hopefully is dying down here. They say there's going to be rain in a few days. Haven't seen it yet. Of course, shit's still burning up North getting crazy. It's, um, almost Thanksgiving. 
in honor of this bizarre American holiday, purportedly to recognize the fact that some Indians saved the lives of the pilgrims by sharing their food with them in their first winter uh, in North America when they all would have starved to death and then taught them how to grow food, (laughs) excuse me, the following spring and summer and basically welcomed these white lunatics um, and supported them and then said white lunatics as soon as they got their feet under them, turned around and murdered and raped and destroyed and stole everything they possibly could. So let's celebrate that uh, by reading a little bit from a book that's coming out sometime next year called Civilized to Death. This is about Columbus's first encounter with the Indians in the West Indies. Uh, Columbus was struck by their kindness, generosity, and physical beauty. In a letter to the king and queen of Spain, he said, They are very simple and honest and exceedingly liberal with all they have, none of them refusing anything he may possess when he has asked for it. They exhibit great love toward all others in preference to themselves. This is Columbus talking about the people he found in the West Indies. In his journals, he was even more complimentary. He wrote, They are the best people in the world, and above all, the gentlest, without knowledge of what is evil, nor do they murder or steal. They love their neighbors as themselves, and they have the sweetest talk in the world. They are always laughing. A few pages on, in one of the most chilling pivots in recorded history, Columbus wrote, They would make fine servants. With fifty men, we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. Happy Thanksgiving, y'all. I want to give a shout out to some people who have joined Patreon recently, uh, or at least joined my Patreon pledge thing recently. Uh, Dean McCarthy, E. Henrik, uh, Kayla. Thank you, Kayla. Chance, Daniel, Eric, Lana. Uh, Paul increased his donation from five to ten. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Skeets, cool. Uh, T. Samuel. I don't. I probably should I say people's last names? I don't know. Jay. Uh, who else? Noah. Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, the bald primate reduced his pledge from five dollars to one dollar. What happened, bald primate? What's going on? But Mark increased his from two to four. Uh, who else? Let's see. Trolls. Hells. Rasmussen. Thank you, uh, Michelle. And I think that's that's all. That's enough, right? That's a few from the last uh, two weeks or so. Uh, so thank you, everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon or by using the Amazon affiliate link on my website, chrisryanphd.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com. Uh, I guess that's about all I'm going to say. I'm going to play some music now, which is Run On For A Long Time by the Blind Boys of Alabama. It's a tune I really like. It's funky and groovy, and uh, yeah, I think you'll dig it too. And then we'll talk with uh, Connor Jones. That's it for me. I'm going to throw this one up and uh, up on the webs, interwebs, those tubes, series of tubes and cables, and I'm really happy that you're out there on the other side of this 
I hope things are going great for you. Adios. Hasta la próxima. Well, stop, great God, let me tell you the news. My head got wet in the midnight dew. I've been down on the bend and knees, talking to the man from Galilee. Then my God spoke, and he sounded so sweet. I thought I heard the shuffle of angels' feet. Then he put one hand upon my head. Great God, the mother, let me tell you what he said. Go tell that long-time So some people go to church just to signify Trying to get a date with the neighbor's wife But listen to me, brother, sure as you're born You'd better leave that woman alone Because one of these days you mark my word You think that brother is going to work You're going to come up and knock on the door That's all, brother, you're not no more You may run on for a long time Stop it, God, let me tell you the news My head got wet in the midnight dew I've been down on the bending knee Talking to the man from Galilee Lord, he spoke, he spoke so sweet I thought I heard the shuffle of angels' feet He placed one hand upon my head Great God, I'm out of, let me tell you what he said All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting in a yurt uh, near Ojai, California, with a guy named Connor Jones, which it sounds like Connor Jones to me is like rock and roll drummer. <laughs> Connor Jones from The Who. Like, yeah. yeah. Do, do you play drums by any chance? No, but I've been mistaken for a rock and roll drummer many times, actually. <laughs> The drummer of the Foo Fighters, in fact, is the oh. common mistake. Oh, nice. Yeah. Who's, what's his name? Uh, Taylor something. I forget his oh, last name. Okay. 
Well, so there you have it. You know what he looks like. Or you can uh, go to our webpage. Cassie will be taking some pictures of us as we're chatting. So you and I met uh, probably two years ago or something. I was up here at a gathering of anthropologists, I believe. Yeah, I saw you at Farmer and the Cook, the restaurant. Right. Were yeah. you part of that group, or were you just hanging out? And it's just hanging. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right, right. Cause... I just finished reading Sex at Dawn, too. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. That's timely. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that was fun. I Cassie and I had been to Ojai before, but we didn't really see anything other than the like downtown mm-hmm. spa, art gallery kind of scene. The and, facade of Ojai. Yeah. And we were like, yeah, maybe not. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not really our style. Sure. And then I came up for that thing, uh, a woman named Ayla, Ayli, A-I-L-I, I think she mm-hmm. was Finnish or... I think she was Finnish. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd met her in Barcelona, and she invited me up to meet some of her friends. And uh, that was fantastic. It was a whole different mm-hmm. scene that uh, I didn't really know existed up here. Yeah, that's sort of like the what Ojai is actually about. You know, right. there's, there's sort of the tourist attraction side of Ojai, and then there's the actual locals and the, the sort of subculture that exists behind that that veil yeah and ojai has this reputation of being cool and mm-hmm. sort of uh, progressive and creative um but then when i saw the the shishi oldie shoppy kind of scene mm-hmm. i thought it you know maybe that was like 10 years ago and it had been subsumed by commercialism but i'm glad to find that i was wrong it's on the hairy edge of that i'd say <laughs> Of being subsumed? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's forever. It's been an artist community. Yeah. And it used to be somewhat cheap to live here. But there's certainly been a big influx of people trying to leave L.A. There's sort of right. the L.A. exodus out of L.A. to Ojai to come live the life that is sort of idolized by a lot of people. Which yeah. is back to the land, creative sort of lifestyle that a lot of the locals embody. So Right. Which has driven up the cost of living in some respects. And yeah. and it's a tourist economy, so everyone's, you know, tailoring, tailoring their approach to that. So. Right. Yeah. And you kind of, in a way, you integrate with some of that impulse in the sense that you, when someone does come here and buy some land and they want to do something interesting with it, you might be someone that they would talk to about... So talk about which the, the reason I, I wanted to do this podcast with you that night, I guess, when we were yeah. at the restaurant, which was the farmer and the cook or the yeah. cook and the farmer. Farmer and the cook. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you explained that you were doing permaculture. And um, that's something I've been really interested in for a long time. This integration of human management with natural systems mm-hmm. uh, in a humble uh, approach as opposed to the industrial, you know, fuck it, we're going to cut down everything. And, yeah, the heavy-handed. Yeah. So yeah. you grew up here um, in on this land where we're sitting right now, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, earlier, this is one of these podcasts where we made the mistake of having an interesting conversation before mm-hmm. we turned on the mics because Connor was showing me around the property. So I'll be referring back to some of the things that you said earlier. But let's let's start from the beginning. You were growing up here. Um, your dad was doing um, water uh, fire sprinkler. sprinklers right. in Orange County. Right. So yeah. he wasn't really. Why did he live here? 
to get out of the suburbs. Okay. So, so I was, was I was born in Huntington Beach and, right. and, and lived in a suburb until I was six. Uh-huh. And one of the memories that I actually have of that was going to play in the Bolsa Chica wetlands. And right around the time that we moved, it was slated to be developed on. And it turned out that there was a lot of um, industrial pollutants that had been dumped in there. But that used to be my stomping ground. It was sort of at the, the fringe of urban sprawl. And it was like the last little refuge of what used to be there. Um, it, you know, wetland ecosystems used to dominate that whole strip of coastline. And uh, so my dad and I would go down there all the time and gather western toads and little tree frogs and snakes and tadpoles and um, the little back swimmer water boatman insects. And I would grab as many interesting life forms as I could in five-gallon buckets, and we'd haul them back to the house, and I'd set them up in the backyard in these aquariums. And I would just, what I was doing was essentially trying to reconstitute or reassemble a functional ecosystem in a way that I could observe it very plainly, and I could see a cross-section through, through the glass, you know. So I realized at a young age I was interested in assembling ecosystems and deeply observing them. So that theme sort of carried on. But as that was being encroached on and we found out that it was very polluted, I think my parents decided that it was time to move to a different you know, part of California that would offer me the connection that I already innately wanted to have with ecology and really? with nature. And, oh. and I think my parents also, in their own right, wanted to be out of the congestion of Orange County and be somewhere that was a, a better place to live so hmm do yeah. you have siblings uh, i have a half sister she's 10 years older than me and we have right. different mothers so we kind of grew up in separate lives right but we've you know we're close now yeah that's really cool that they looked at it from your perspective mm-hmm. and wanted to put you in an environment that you were yearning for that's a very generous sort of approach to parenting yeah they're very generous people that's sweet that's, yeah, that's very really supportive cool. yeah yeah and uh so you you know i did the same i had the same kind of childhood <laughs> yeah like to down to the nasty detail too uh, i grew up in western pennsylvania mm-hmm. north of pittsburgh mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s and I didn't realize it at the time, but it was totally contaminated. That's where all the steel mills mm. were. They, a river caught on fire, actually, because oh there was so much shit in the river. Yeah. And, um, but, yeah, I used to go you know, catch frogs and mm-hmm. hang out in the streams and all that kind of stuff as well. And I thought it was fine. You don't know. You know, the shifting baseline theory. Do you mm-hmm. know about that? It's an interesting concept. Like, you we all assume that the world we grew up in is the natural state. Yeah. And then we say from there, things have gotten worse, but we're not aware of how much worse things got before we, I was thinking about that this morning, driving down, we camped up on the mountain there and we were driving down and Cassie was talking about how beautiful the mountains were. And I didn't want to say anything, but what I was thinking was these mountains 300 years ago were probably covered in Ponderosa pine had, deep soil Mm -hmm. rich ecosystem Mm -hmm. lots of animals and now they're just totally bare yep 
And there's a beauty in a bear mountain, but not when you know that that's you not know the, the cause, way it's supposed yeah. to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. And in my work, a lot of what I do is try to understand what was before mm. so I can interpret what can be again. Because yeah. the the aim of, of permaculture, or in, in particular, the element of it that is regenerative agriculture, is, is restoring ecological function in a way that also has productivity for human resource supply. And so if we know what the sort of biotic inertia of a particular landscape is and was, we can plan for facilitating the reemergence of that but in a way that also is highly productive from like the anthropocentric perspective. Yeah, I, I imagine those calculations are getting more complicated now because you look at what was 300 years ago, but the sort of underlying climactic conditions aren't going to be what they were 300 years ago. Yeah. So you're kind of like... You want to take it back to what was to the extent that it's possible in light of the fact that this environment is changing. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. and one of I mean, one of the things that's very hopeful about regenerative agriculture in relation to um, climate change and, you know, the ecological crisis is that agricultural systems that model nature like agroforestry, for example, or managed grazing sequester tons of carbon from the atmosphere just like the ecosystems of the late pleistocene did right so if we can understand what the landscape wants to cover itself with and very rapidly move it through succession into that then our agricultural systems become these major carbon sinks and in fact all the industrial carbon that we've mined from deep under the earth actually becomes plant food and the ingredients for the deepest topsoils in living history so it, it's it's fortunate actually if we can look at the situation through that lens right right so it's like i don't know a lot about permaculture but what attracts me to it is exactly what you just described i mean in addition to all its practical um, functionality but the psychological hmm. functionality is that it offers a positive way to view our current situation in history. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't um, erase the fact that we're facing a crisis, but it seems to offer ways to understand the crisis in positive ways. And, you know, like we were saying earlier, um, you've got compost here mm -hmm. that is utilizing chicken shit and human shit and pig shit and whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's not only creating great soil that then you're going to use to grow vegetables and fruits and all sorts of different uh, plants that you've got going here. But you're also generating heat out of it. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, we're all shitting in L.A. and it's going in pipes and, you know, a lot of it right out into the ocean. Yeah. Destroying the ocean. That's not right. necessary. Mm -hmm. If we just approach these things more intelligently, there's so much to be gained from yeah. what we're throwing away or paying money to dispose of now. Right. It's crazy. Absolutely. Uh, a friend of mine named Art Ludwig, who's who was uh, one of the early pioneers of gray water in California, and he, mm. he actually helped gray water become legal in the state. He calls... Um, Explain what gray water is. Gray water is essentially second-use water from showers, from hand-washing basins right. that can be used in the landscape as a, as a source of irrigation water. Um, and if we implemented that, we would have tremendous savings statewide. 
in you can water f- consumption. You can use it to flush your toilet, too. There's, yes, you, you can. You don't need like drinkable water to right. shit in. What a weird system mm-hmm. we have. Yeah, I mean, in the case of L.A., it's like bring it all the way from the eastern Sierras and bring it way, right. way down. Actually, move it uphill and then bring it, you know, it's like water flows uphill to money. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, at the end of yeah. the, like, what's the end game of that? Yeah. You know, it's not a good picture. But he, so Art says um, flush toilets and that whole system of, of sewage and waste management is the most insidious form of erosion. Because if you think about it... Mm. We buy food, mm-hmm. which is the yield of productive soils, and then we consume it. And what, you know, we are what we don't defecate. So the rest of that sort of effluent is, is the yield of soils from some distant landscape that we then flush away. So there's no way. return to the source. Right. So soils inherently are just going to get poorer and poorer. And likewise, the quality of our diet is going to get worse and worse. So even in the context on my small farm, it's like we have to cycle nutrients back through. Otherwise we'll constantly be sucking from the system and you look generations down the line and trace minerals and nutrients are going to be gone. Right. So, and the, you know, out here we're semi rural. So the alternative to a compost toilet is a septic system and you're taking water and, and humanure and putting it underground like three feet below the soil surface where you get anaerobic microorganisms living there because it's very low in oxygen once you get down below a foot and a half, two feet in most soils. And you're essentially brewing like E. coli and like bad organisms and concentrating nitrates and pollutants depending on what you're flushing down or washing down the sink. And it's below the realm of evaporation. So that water only has one place to go and that's down. So then it goes into perched aquifers and then it goes into well water and then it goes into the streams and then you end up drinking that stuff back up or it's polluting the watershed. So there's actually places um, along the California coast with very sandy soils and they rely on the, the continuous output of septic leach fields to rehydrate the water table that they draw from for agriculture. Wow. So if that puts it into context, it's yeah. like, you know, it, it, it makes our options look even more narrow in terms of what we should do with our shit. Yeah. Yeah. Narrow options or or another way to look at it is the obvious answer is the correct one. Yeah. You know, like there's no need for that shit to go in pipes far away. Right. Yeah. It can be used right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and obviously in cities, you can't, you don't have composting, you know, in apartment buildings or something, but that sewage could be treated and used in productive ways. Well, there's the potential for methane gas generation from it too, Mm. in which case, um, the, the liquid distribution of, of humanure is actually really advantageous because you make this soup and you put it in a centralized biodigester and it you'd be generating a tremendous amount of a very potent energy source. I mean, methane gas is amazing. Yeah, you don't want that escaping into the atmosphere. You don't want that escaping. But it's going to anyway with the current system. That's the other thing. It's like when it goes to sewage treatment facilities or through the sewer, it's already going through anaerobic fermentation. And all that energy that you could be peeling out of it is just wafting up into the biosphere, into the atmosphere. So, Right. 
Yeah. So let's get back to to uh, how you got into all this. So you you were already interested in ecosystems and and how different life forms integrate and one feeds mm-hmm. off the other and supports the other and all that cyclical sort of understanding of nature. And you said you you got real into Native American culture. Yeah. So how did that work? Well, as a, as a kid, I mean, indigenous culture and societies and their methods of procuring their food and resources from wild nature was like this, it's just like an intrinsic fascination that I had. And I think a lot of young human beings do kind of fascinate over that it's like how, why for most of history has this been going on i yeah. want some kind of contact with that and it's not available often so i was kind of gleaning as much information as i could um and you know at that age it's hard to rationalize why now i understand it a bit better um but it offered me a foundation and sort of an ethic for how i wanted to live that sort of cyclic relationship and a deep understanding of the landscape that surrounds me and the functions of different plant species and their relationship to the animals that forage on them or, you know, so th- there, there was, there was something there and I carried it with me until, and I mean, really until today, but, um, I definitely went through a phase of living in a teepee without electricity, cooking the food that I grew um, over the fire, sleeping by the fire every night on a lambskin rug. You know, this is like my 17, 18, 19-year-old self. Mm-hmm. And that was a really wonderful experience. I mean, I felt, I felt great. I woke up at the crack of dawn every mm-hmm. morning, just like compelled by nature. It's like when you wake up and you're looking up through the 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 smoke flaps of a teepee and the sky is purple coming through. It's like mm. you get out of bed. Right. There's something to it. That's, that's just so enlivening. Was that here on this property? Yeah. Right, right here where the yurt is right. now. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't a practical lifestyle for me to move forward in the world that is, is at present. So are you wearing a loincloth? I didn't go that far. I didn't go that far. <laughs> I did, dude. <laughs> yeah. I was so obsessed with, with Indians. I read every book, I, like from like eight to 14 or so, mm-hmm. come home from school, take off my clothes, put on my loincloth. That's awesome. Wore the loincloth all night. I'd go out and play f- with my friends in my loincloth, run around the neighborhood. All right. You know, well. <laughs> no shirt. And my loincloth, by the way, was a, purple bath towel (laughs) so maybe we understand each other better than we thought (laughs) that's what i'm saying like our childhoods were very uh similar in that respect yeah i i felt i don't know if if you felt this to any extent but and i don't mean this disrespectfully to anybody but i felt something that i think is probably akin to um like a transgender experience, mm. like someone who says, wait a minute, there's a mistake here. Like mm-hmm. this isn't my body. Mm-hmm. I felt that like in a deep identity sense, like sure. I was reincarnated in the wrong place, wrong time, wrong family. I love my family. Nothing wrong with my family. You know, I like my body. Everything's fine. But it's like, no, no, my skin's supposed to be brown. I'm supposed to be living in a wigwam or, a yeah. you know. And this was Northeast United States, so I was really tied into like the Iroquois kind of. That was my first tribe. I was fascinated by yeah, actually too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's never gone away. You know, 
civilized to death is in a way a mm-hmm. statement. It's it's sort of a closing of a circle in a way or a spiraling of, of life, like returning um, to a critique of civilization that's informed by a lifetime of saying, wait a minute, there's actually a way to be integrated yeah. into the world rather than uh, exterior to it and destroying it. Right. Yeah, I, I can relate to what you just described, too, of feeling like you were born in the wrong time or something to that Did effect. Did you feel something like that? Yeah, I had I had this... I mean, I grew up in Ojai, and it's a very, like, sort of new age spiritual bubble. Yeah. So there was a lot of people that were telling me, like, well, you're just an incarnated, like, Chumash or, you know, right. and I was like, well, yeah. Perhaps I entertain these theories that are, yeah. you can't prove them. It's just based on what you feel. And after a certain while, I realized that it wasn't really like that way of thinking didn't have much utility. Hmm. Um, I like that. You're not talking about whether something's true or not. You're talking about whether that way of thinking is useful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a deeper way of understanding life that mm-hmm. it's hard for people to get there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like. Yeah, I, I like to look at what is um, more objectively useful and true. And for me, it's like, yeah, I could spend, you know, the next few years of my life being convinced that I was a reincarnated Native American. But what I what I actually think is true is that we're all indigenous to this planet. And had I grown up in a different country... I'd probably be fascinated by the indigenous culture that was there before and have some theory that I was an incarnated yada yada from some other place. It's like, so, um, what has become interesting to me though, is, is understanding my actual, um, roots from being Welsh, mostly Welsh. My dad immigrated from Wales when he was my age. And I recently went back there and we your age now. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. He moved to, um, Hollywood from from a steel mining village coal and steel mine village in uh, in South Wales so it was a big culture shock and why because he was slated to work in a steel mill until he was 55 yeah and he didn't want that life huh so he decided to leave and his his mentor his mentor in the steel mill said Colin Jones it's a cold wind that blows outside these gates son <laughs> And then he ended up on like Sunset Strip in 1970s. He's like hanging out with the Beatles at the Rainbow and like, you know. Was he a musician? No, he was British though. So all the British people hung out together. (laughs) You know, some clotted cream. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No shit. Wow. Yeah. So. So what year was that when he rolled to Hollywood? uh, 73 or four, I want to say. So it was happening. Yeah, it was going on. Yeah. He had a lot of fun. I'll bet. What did he, uh, did he work? How, mm-hmm. how did that work out? He got a job at an antique shop mm. because, because of his accent. Fancy. Yeah. And it yeah. was a British import antique shop. Oh, okay. So he, he, you know, he looked the part and spoke the right way. So. Right. Right. That's yeah. cool. He had a bunch of different jobs throughout that period, but that right. was the main one that he's told me stories about. And was he, uh, like a hippie? Was he in the whole hippie thing? Or they... Not not exactly. When he was in Britain, he was a mod. So oh, okay. he grew up in like the era of the Who. Right. And Quadrophenia. like Ziggy Stardust. And right. So he was, um, 
He had like vertical stripe bell bottom pants and yeah, super androgynous style. Right. And you know, they rode the scooters <laughs> the or the scooters, Aston Martins. Right. And, yeah, yeah, that's um, funny. So then he came here and he was just like, "Wow, this is amazing too." And uh, yeah, I'm not sure what you would call his style at that point in time, but uh, it's it's cool to look at pictures of him from the 70s. He's like yeah. a whole different character. And your mom's American. My mom was born in jacksonville florida but grew up they were on vacation in florida and she was born she grew up in kentucky Mm. so very different but similar in some respects because most of her family was from from coal mining lineage oh right so that's i kind of have this this historical connection to coal miners which you ever read any dh lawrence Mm -mm. you heard him Mm -mm. he was um british writer from Wales and uh, grew up in coal mining towns and had uh, tuberculosis. Hmm. Very interesting guy. He was one of my favorite writers for a while. Um, And then he came, uh, he lived in Taos, New Mexico for a while Hmm. and traveled a lot in Greece to get into dry climates to help him with the tuberculosis. Hmm. Um, But he wrote a lot about the sort of the despair of those coal towns in Wales. Yeah, so did Orwell, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, I interrupted your, your flow there. Um, All good. You were talking about uh, your dad came here when he was your age. Where were you going before I, I knocked you off the track there? I was talking about um, my Welsh lineage. Yeah. And how he came here. And so... My whole life, I've been traveling back to Wales to to visit oh, relatives. Oh, okay. You still have family there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I just went back a couple months ago, and I hadn't been there for almost 10 years. The last time I was there was for my grandfather's funeral when I was 17. And so, yeah, 10 years later, I go back there. And um, this is after I've, I've um, been into permaculture and understanding these, these sort of ancient agricultural systems that create resiliency within cultures that Mm. stand up to the test of time. And so I went back to Wales with a different lens and a different appreciation for my culture or where, at least where I come from. And it was definitely a, an amazing homecoming. I, I could see the landscape for what it was in a much different way. Like going on these hikes, uh, you know, I was jet lagged, so I was waking up super early and, Wales and most of the UK um, in the countryside, there's all these public trails everywhere that go through private property, but they're old trails that are just grandfathered in and they're protected by, you know, the state so that you can freely navigate. And so I would get up at sunrise and the cacophony of birds, first of all, was just like so enlivening. I, mm. In those wetter climates, especially that time of year, it was... Um, midsummer so all the berries were in full fruit so Mm. the birds were just so ecstatic it was like (laughs) that in itself was like a form of nourishment just hearing that yeah and likely they're just disputing territory and fighting with each other but But it it sounds sounds happy yeah yeah (laughs) yeah but there's this hum to it that's beautiful so i woke up to that and then was kind of wandering through these trails and each sheep paddock is divided by these um these hazelnut fences they they lay the fence they actually 
allow the hazelnut to come up on its own. It comes up along the fence line edges because the sheep can't graze right up to it. Mm. So it's, it creates an edge in the landscape where like a bird lands on the fence post and it, it poops out a bunch of berry seeds or somehow hazelnuts end up germinating along that, that fringe. And it turns into this mass of vegetation that consumes the whole fence and replaces its function with living vegetation. Oh, that's cool. So you end up with like 12 plus species of edible plants yeah. that are also good forage for the sheep. They can go eat the broadleafed plants that are along there too. But there's like hawthorns and blackberries and hazelnuts and oak coming up through it. And it's it's a it's like a forest succession that wants to burst out into full climax but it's maintained by the sheep and the right, farmer right and so they cut the hazel canes like halfway through the stem so there's still sap flow through the cambium but they lay them over like uh, diagonally and cross them and they fuse together and make these lattice fences of living hazel mm. And then they go through and top them with, you know, a hedger and drop it in and feed it to the sheep. So cool. And it's like, that's so amazing. And it's working with the biotic inertia. It wants to do that, but you just maintain succession there. Right. And you just guide it a little. mm -hmm. You don't need to fucking kill it and replace it. Just guide it. It's a steering. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I read somewhere that uh, like medieval Europe, the roadways were all lined with fruit and nut trees. Mm -hmm. So you could travel, you could just set off and walk on a pilgrimage or whatever, and you knew that you'd be able to eat fruits and nuts the whole way. You didn't have to carry anything with you. Yeah, that, I mean, that would make a lot of sense, right? I wonder if that was a Roman thing, too, because they Mm. established a lot of the routes throughout throughout the UK. And we, in fact, we walked on a Roman road that was like over a thousand years old. We're like, and it was still there. Yeah, they knew how to design roads in the landscape so that they didn't get washed out. They would use contour lines or ridge lines mm. where there's the least aggressive erosion. Right. So, um, but it seems like you know edible plants follow humans. There, there's there's an innate relationship between the two of them where they perpetuate one another. Right. And so it may have been accidental or it may have been human planned or a little bit of both. Mm, good point. You're eating an apple, you're walking down the road, you throw the pit off to the side and there's an apple tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or you take a shit on the side of the trail too. Mm-hmm. And, um, and many seeds are actually well prepared by going through the digestion of humans or other monogastric right. organisms like you know, it opens the seed coat and, right. and plops it down with everything it needs to germinate successfully. Exactly. Right. But there's a, there's one thing I've I observed when I was going to school. Um, I went to a private school where we did backpacking trips in the wilderness around here, and I I noticed this behavior that happened with every single kid on the trail. Any type of grass or plant with um, a seed head, the kids would would just strip the seeds off the head and throw them just continuously. It's like when you're marching forward for eight miles, it's like you try to figure out something to entertain yourself with. And I would just watch these kids were innately gathering seed and throwing them. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's programmed in some, some way, you know, that's interesting. I never thought I've done that a million times. I never yeah. thought of it as being a part of an ecosystem. 
Yeah, yeah the, the grass seeds, you just strip them off. Right. Yeah. So I meant to ask you, do you have, did you study permaculture in a school or is this stuff you picked up through working or mentorships or how did you? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a, quite an amalgamation of different learning experiences. A lot of it has been trial and error. Mm. Most of the valuable insights have come from that. But I did have some formal education. And the whole story of it was um, I was in a an Algebra two class in my senior year of high school, and I'd been an awful student all throughout school, but always been fascinated by learning what I'm interested in. Like, I would... Yeah have an encyclopedic knowledge of things that were fascinating to me, but anything other than that, I was not interested in. So school was not very compatible with my style of learning. So I just sort of eked by, and I was in, yeah, it was the last month of my senior year, and I'm in this chair in an Algebra two class that I've already failed once, and I know I'm going to pass it this year. So I'm just like, completely checked out, leaning back as far as I can in my chair. Oh, boy. Yeah. And and I'm like, you know, I'm surrounded by these high-achieving kids who yeah. have, their parents have spent tens of thousands of dollars for their education, and they've got college plans, and they know what they're doing. And so I'm a little bit, like, trying to disassociate from the fact that I haven't done any of that, too, and, and not be consumed by the guilt of that. Um. So I'm just kicking back as much as I can, and I'm thinking about what I want to do next. And the only inclination I had was to, to do a natural building apprenticeship at Cal Earth in Hesperia, um, which was sort of, I was getting closer to what I was interested in. But my chair fell out from underneath me, and I hit my head on the bookshelf. And I get up and turn around, and it was like, such a moment of clarity. I was drawn directly to this this one book on the shelf. It was like a tattered-looking, green-spined book. And I pull it out and slap it down on my lap. And it's Introduction to Permaculture by Bill Mollison. <laughs> <laughs> so the class is laughing at you. Yeah. You've taken a tumble. You hit your head. You turn around, see this book. And there it is. There it is. Your future. Yep. Incredible. Yeah. And the teacher was staring at me in such deep disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, man. Yeah. So uh, how, how quickly did you realize that that was a doorway into your future? Well, I think it was pretty instantaneous, actually, because of the characteristics of the cover of the book, in fact. It mm. was uh, an illustrated site design for an integrated permaculture homestead, right? So it was like... The house was at the center, and the house had a pond on the sun side of it to reflect light up into it during the winter time when the sun angle was low. Oh. And then there was this um, semi-spiraled berm around it to deflect road noise and wind. And then between the, the pond and the house, there was intensive garden beds for, you know, all of the your sort of high nutrient food crops, your leafy greens and mineral dense stuff that need your attention. So they're right there where your big windows are. So you can look at them. They're next to the pond. So all the pollinator insects can come and go as they please. You can water directly from the pond with nutrient rich water. And then outside of that was a food forest of productive tree and shrub crops and vine crops that were sort of like the shelter belt for the whole thing. And then 
uh, on the back side of the house, um, this was an Australian copy, so that would have been the south side. The north side is the sun side there. So um, on the back side, there was like the, the poultry, the chickens and ducks and some rabbits, the, the animals that you want to keep close to your house because predators don't like to come that close. And you're going to go there at least twice a day to collect eggs, feed, and put them away at night. Mm -hmm. So everything was placed in relative location based on the frequency of human visits. Right. And then and you uh, saw that when you looked at it, it, it just sort of, you saw how it made sense. Yeah. It, it felt more than it, it like intellectually made yeah, sense. Right. Um, but as I looked, I looked at it closer and closer and then obviously read the whole book, you know, cover to cover. And then it really clicked. But, you know, that it was such a beautiful environment that reflected so many of the things that I valued and all of the seemingly scattered interests I'd had all throughout childhood and adolescence of, you know, indigenous cultures, um, you know, growing my own food, raising livestock, fishing, you know, wilderness survival stuff, my new interest in natural building. Um, so it, it took all these things that I had been interested in and kind of gotten really deeply involved in and then just let go and moved on to the next thing. Right. I was like, I always grew up thinking right. I had no discipline, right? right? Because yeah. I would just get into this and then forget about it, you know? Yeah. Like I taught myself how to tie flies and fly fish when I was 12 and then stopped doing it when I was 13. Yeah. But I realized later on I had this deep well of information to glean from. Yeah. And what permaculture was, was a connecting system for exactly. all that. And it yeah. was like the penny really dropped there. And I was like, wow, this... This is something I can use to not only improve my life, but my family's life, the value of the property we live on, and the planet. It was like, right. it was such a moment, yeah. you know, where it all comes together. You were 17. Yeah. And there was a blow to your head. That's, yeah. I mean, short of lightning striking, that's pretty good, man. <laughs> yeah. And so that was about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I can say, like, we, we spent about an hour looking around the property before we sat down to do this podcast. It's incredible here what you've got going Thanks. i mean all the animals and the pond and the the greenhouse is it, is that a greenhouse does it yeah, count as a greenhouse yeah semi but with like fish ponds feeding the plants and the, all these integrated systems and i didn't even know until today that uh, legumes grew on trees i mm -hmm. thought they were all underground mm -hmm. bean well i guess beans peanuts are an underground legume. Yeah, yeah peanuts that's mm -hmm. what i'm thinking of right yeah Mm -hmm. um, what other legumes grow on trees? Well, the three main legumes that I grow for, for human use are carob, which is native Carabs, to right. North Africa and the right. Mediterranean basin. Um, honey locust, which is native to North America and mesquite, which is Southwest endemic, ah. all of which have about 30 to 40% carbohydrate in the pods and up to 15% protein contained in the seed. So, and they're extremely drought tolerant and live, they have a productive lifespan of 200 plus years. Mm. And so it's like, you don't have to water it and it'll produce for multiple generations and it's a staple crop. Right. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. Again, I, I think about this, like I just drove up to San Francisco uh, a week or two ago, up the five. Oh yeah. And there are all these signs saying, you know. Uh, the you know the industrial farmers along there all pissed off. They're not getting as much water as they used to. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's this one sign I, I see over and over again that says, "Is growing food wasting water?" Mm -hmm. 
Like, that's a nonsense question. It is if you're growing the wrong food, yeah. right? If you're growing a food that takes 30 times as much water as some crop that would be natural to this environment, then yes, asshole, it is wasting water. Yeah. Yeah, it is, I mean, it is. And it's walnuts, certain, right? Walnuts use a lot of water. Yeah, almonds and walnuts. But it's really the, the mode of production that they're right. using that, right. that causes it to be that way. Because nuts are harvested off the ground. So they come through and mechanically shake the trees, and then they vacuum the nuts off the ground. Mm. So in that system of production and harvest, you can't have biomass on the ground. You can't mulch it. You can't actually so allow... So the soil it. just gets depleted. It's totally right. evaporative. Right. So that's They would why. see it as waste to have yeah. stuff on the ground. Right. Yeah. But they are... Those farmers, I actually have a lot of sympathy for them because they, they're doing what they know how to do. And they're supplying to a, a massive population of people who don't take responsibility for food production. Right. So it falls on the shoulders of these people who have a tiny profit margin and and don't really have the intellectual space, not because they're not smart, because they are s so consumed by their agricultural endeavor that has a tiny profit margin that if they make any changes, mm. they might go bust. So they can't experiment. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's the way the economics are rigged with large-scale agriculture. It's like you're in a binding agreement mm -hmm. with whoever you're distributor is to produce x amount and if you don't then sorry yeah so there's not a lot of flexibility even if they wanted to do the right thing so let's get into that question of of economics i mean is there something about the education that we should cover yeah let uh, let's go then we'll get into economics after sure. that all right so yeah we talked about i asked you about your education you did a lot of uh uh, yeah. trial and error here but obviously you, you have to learn a lot of this stuff mm -hmm. somewhere right yeah i think a lot of my education did come from being on this 10 acre property and and reading that book and seeing everything through a new lens hmm. and so i realized that this this particular landscape has a lot of microclimates it's got a lot of elevation changes a lot of stone sections where there's heat traps and, and cold sections and different soil types. So it was kind of a, a beautiful opportunity to build Noah's Ark of mm. all the different useful plant species that grow in this climate, which right. is a very long list. Um, For those that, who don't know, Ojai is in Southern California, about an hour and a half north of L.A. In the mountains, what elevation are we at here? We're, we're about 850 to 900 feet above sea level. Right. So we're right in the foothills. And we're right on the edge of the Topatopa Mountains, which essentially are a wall that stop rain and mm. dump it right here. Okay. The other side of the mountains is a rain shadow. The Cuyama Valley is, has six inches of rain average. Here it's 20 inches okay. annually. So, And it's a rainy season. It's not dispersed through the year. Yeah, it's... we get like six major rain events that occur through November to February, and then it tapers off we do get some rainy springs but it's it's pretty much here and gone right um, but it's analogous to a lot of different mediterranean climates across the planet where right. most of our many of our cultivated crops come from so it's it's this haven for, right for a lot of diversity yeah your neighbor is an olive farmer yeah that's great it's mm -hmm. very mediterranean yeah um 
Okay, sorry, we're back to your educational thing. So yeah, yeah. The, I realized that there was only so much I could learn on my own. Right. And so, um, my my folks at this point, this was like six months after graduating or a year after graduating. They're like, so what do you want to, you know, what do you want to do? And so I did some research and tried to find the the best expression of permaculture education that was hands-on and very involved and sort of a live-in situation um, and also get my sort of breakaway from home at the same time. Right. So I, at 18, left here and went to the east coast of Australia and studied with Jeff Lawton, who at the time and still is one of the most prominent teachers of permaculture, and Bill Mollison, who was the co-originator of the concept with David Holmgren, sort of handed things over to Jeff when Bill was in his you know, late 70s, early 80s, and they were co-teaching together for a while, and then Bill kind of left and went to Tasmania to you know, be with his family, um, and Jeff carried it on. And he's famous for his Greening the Desert project, or he's got two now. In 2001, he was given 10 acres of degraded, just completely barren desert landscape in Jordan that had such high salinity in the soil that, you know, the, the local agricultural college there, their experts said no one will be able to grow in this. Mm. And he got figs to produce in, I think it was six months after he arrived there. No shit. You know, so, and he designed this um, desert forest and he planted twice as many inedible trees as edible trees. These are very hardy desert species that could make use of that landscape. Many of them are legumes, so they have an association with rhizobia bacteria that actually initially parasitize the roots and steal starches from the root. But after they develop a colony large enough, they then start um, respirating nitrogen. They draw it in out of the atmosphere and blow some back out, but they store it in the root system and feed it to the tree that's giving them carbohydrates. Mm, so it's a symbiotic relationship. Yep. Nice. And then they begin to exude a surplus that other plants can tap into. Ah. So those pioneer trees are the first arrivers in degraded landscapes. Right. So we're So they're actually fortifying the soil just by existing. Exactly. And that's they can grow fantastic. out of nothing. It's it's an amazing feat huh. of, you know, of symbiosis uh but so he did that and you know everyone was laughing at him like why would you plant trees that you can't even eat in a place where you can't grow food in the first place but he did it and it created this canopy and he took all the organic matter from all the neighboring farms where they would pile it up and burn it he took it all and covered his 10 acres with like a foot he said of biomass and he also patterned uh, an entire water harvesting system he created these ditches on contour that caught all the water that previously ran off during the somewhat infrequent rainstorms they had. So now this property was catching all of its water. There were trees that were continuously building the soil and he had put carbon biomass on the soil. Turns out that habitat allowed a fungus to flourish that grabbed the salt particulates and exuded a wax coating over them and made the salt inert. And then he could grow the, the more sensitive, productive species. Right? So it didn't remove the salt, it just isolated it. Exactly. That's incredible. Yeah. So I was like, that guy, I should probably go and visit. Yeah. So, and I stayed at his farm in 
um, northern New South Wales. It's a little inland from Byron Bay. Uh-huh. Just, Beautiful area. Oh, so fantastic. It's not what you picture when you think of Australia, at yeah. least for me. I had always heard desert yeah. outback landscape, but it was subtropics. It was, yeah. it was beautiful. Yeah. So um, we st- I stayed on his farm that was quite a paradise. I mean, it was about 120 acres, I'd say. And he had, at that point, like 15 ponds, which they called dams there. And I'm not talking small ponds. These things are like the one you saw here. It's like a million gallons mm. of, of rain catchment. And then every single pond is linked together with a series of these swales, right? So water is passively distributed throughout the entirety of the landscape instead of concentrating in valleys and leaving. So there were springs emerging everywhere that were man-made. From the water. It was percolating down and coming back up. Yep. Interesting. So then all of his agricultural systems were fed by that. He had no outside water source, no outside power, and no outside... Um, well, the only thing from the outside was the internet, really. Right. <laughs> so that's all you need. So yeah, I mean, all podcast. of the energy requirements, yeah, <laughs> were were in house. So did he? Like, how does that work? Did you? Is he accepting students, or did, yeah. did you pay a tuition, or mm-hmm. how, how does that? Go? I paid for um, for the two week permaculture design course, which is sort of the internationally recognized certificate of like you learned the basics. Mm. So you go there, it's it's supposed to be 72 hours of, of essentially like classroom lecture and some hands-on stuff. And it's based on Bill Mollison's designer's manual. So it's a chapter a day out of his book, which is called the Bible by a lot of permaculturists. And it's, it's an amazing arrangement of information. Um, so I did that for two weeks and then stayed on for another three months right. as an intern. Right. So it, was, um, it wasn't like a, a, an apprenticeship where you're just kind of like told to do grunt work. He was there with us, coaching us through everything. Right. So it was a really immersive experience and, and he's good at teaching. So um, that was before he launched his online course, which I think he's doing more of that now. He did... He did an online course and it was like a thousand bucks and you get all the information and you can look at it, you know, as long as you want. Whereas the the previous model is like, you're there and you better get the information. Right. Um, so it was a thousand bucks and he got 3000 students right away. Mm. It's like, the internet's amazing. Yeah. The the exponential growth or potential for education is true. Yeah. And people who can't afford to fly to Australia for two weeks. Yep. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah, and yeah. many of my clients now are people who took his online course and want someone to help coach them right. through the, the actual implementation. Um, right. But yeah, I was there for a while, and, and we bonded. We had a good relationship with each other, and um, and then I, I left there and set out to do something similar. And I was teaching um, certification courses here for about three years, and I had a live-in crew of, of farm work trade people. Um, facilitating workshops and making projects happen and uh it was a good period of time Mm. yeah so i went from being taught to teaching and i found that teaching helped me learn a tremendous amount yeah because i read that book front to back you know that curriculum i had to know it through and through and have good and funny stories to tell you got to have your anecdotes yeah yeah there's nothing like teaching to make you learn Mm mm-hmm yeah, it's it's really interesting when you've got 
how you think you know something until you try teaching it mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you realize mm-hmm. how many gaps there are. Seriously. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. So you had these people living, you came back here and, and put all this stuff into action here yeah. and you had people living here, putting things into action earlier. We were talking about how some of the challenges of having a bunch of people under your wing. Yeah. Uh, are you done with that? Or are you just taking a rest? How does, how does that look? I don't know. Hmm. I, so if someone's listening to this, some 22-year-old who's like, fuck, that's it. That's what I want yeah. to do. There's hope. Should they, should they reach out to you or what, what would you recommend to people who are well, thinking about this? Yeah, if they're interested in being here or visiting specifically, my website is ohipermaculture.com and I'll be updating when I do have workshops or internship opportunities. At the moment, I'm sort of taking a hiatus from that which has been really helpful. It's been an opportunity for me to get a lot of self-reflection because that whole period of time was such a whirlwind for me. I mean, I had a, I had a child when I was 19. Oh. And so a lot of this, a lot of me teaching and getting this crew together was to actually materialize something that could generate some capital so that I could be a, a dad and live mm. um, a productive life. It's hard to know what I'd be doing otherwise. Um, but yeah, that I'm taking a break to reflect on a lot of things. And I think much of what we were operating from was an ideology rather than practicality. Mm. So we had this sort of notion, at least I did, I can speak for myself, and that if you let people to their own devices, they're going to do what the right thing is to do because they want to do it, right? Mm. And there are some constraints that occur on that that innate willingness when everyone else isn't the landowner mm-hmm. and they aren't they aren't as competent in certain disciplines so a natural hierarchy emerged and a lot of the functioning ideology we all had is that hierarchies are bad mm-hmm. and it's like well let's just observe the fact that we already immediately assemble ourselves in hierarchies mm-hmm. and accept the ones that are useful and dispense with the ones that aren't and try to create fairness. But there was this sort of entitled pursuit from many of the, from all of us in some respect to get equality always in decision-making and in resource distribution. But the fact of the matter is that not everybody had an equal contribution. Mm -hmm. So that can get very sticky when you live with people. I mean, (laughs) Yeah, that's something I run into a lot in in my writing and also in um, conversation. People, when we talk about egalitarian social structures and mm-hmm. hunter-gatherers, it's very easy to assume that they're non-hierarchical. Yeah. But they're not non-hierarchical. Yeah. They're, they're, in some respects, anti-hierarchical. Um, but there are mechanisms built in to take advantage of the positive aspects of hierarchy and neutralize the negative aspects, I guess is yep. the best way to say There's it. There's checks and balances to this. checks and balance. I mean, quite literally, the yep. Iroquois social system and political system is adopted in the sure. Bill of Rights, right, you know, exactly. that Benjamin Franklin studied. And, you know, so, yeah, there is actually checks and balances. But mm-hmm. there's a great book for people who are interested in this called uh, Hierarchy in the Forest. Mm-hmm. 
by David Bohm, B-O-E-H-M. And he talks about that, how hunter-gatherers, it's not that they don't have hierarchies. They recognize hierarchy and they intentionally um, evolve mechanisms to stop them from getting dangerous, Mm -hmm. to stop assholes from becoming leaders. Like, obviously, we have a lot to learn (laughs) at the moment in the United States. But... uh, yeah. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you, but that that's just such an interesting point and misunderstanding about human nature. And people misunderstand me to be arguing that we're not hierarchical. We are. Yeah. So are bonobos, by the way. Sure. You know, but they neutralize the negative impacts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that was the sort of realization I had is that nature is a series of different hierarchies. Mm. And right, and some can be quite brutal, and some can be very life promoting, and the same thing can exist simultaneously in one hierarchy. Mm. And it's like, what's the trade off, you know, for some negativity or some sort of benevolent dictatorship where someone's like actually has your best interests at heart, which can occur, um, and helps to elevate other people until they have the degree of competence to spread out and create things more horizontally, right? Which was kind of where things were going, but it, it just was too exhausting. I wasn't in a, in, I didn't have a particular will for power. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, like every, I ended up being responsible for almost everything. Right. So I wasn't into it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I find that money and financial exchanges can be a really helpful way to alleviate some of the the tensions that are created, especially in a work trade sort of environment or right. an apprenticeship situation. Right. So I'm, I'm taking the time to reflect on it and get very precise about what's useful and what's not, and then go from there. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you went to Australia, there was a hierarchy there. Yeah. You were seeking knowledge mm-hmm. from someone who you believed had that knowledge mm-hmm. and was competent at transmitting it. Mm-hmm. There was a price that was agreed upon there were limits. You weren't going to move in and live the rest of your life there. Uh, it seems to me like that that's important to have those things laid out very clearly. Yep. And you are in charge. I mean, if you're the one who's transmitting the knowledge, I think this is one of the... I've, I've been talking with friends about this. I think one of the reasons podcasting has gotten very popular among young men mm-hmm. is that the educational system, at least in the United States has drifted into a place where teachers don't have authority. Mm-hmm. You know, teachers are, are worried about what kind of reviews they're going to get from their students. Yep. And, uh, you know, if you say something the least bit offensive, you can get fired because some student complained. That's not what we want from our no. mentors. We want somebody who doesn't give a fuck. Who's figured it out. And they're not scared of 18-year-old kids. Right. Yes, exactly. You know? So it's kind of like, I think, you know, Jordan Peterson Mm -hmm. and Joe Rogan and, you know, Sam Harris, these people, these massive followings. I think a lot of it is like they're fulfilling some sort of mentorship, professorship That's missing. It's a lacking. It's missing, yeah. yeah. It's lacking in our society. And and I could see that inherently in the generation of of people that were attracted to being here. There's, There's a general disrespect and resentment for structure and hierarchy right and and yet a need for it and yeah yep so yeah i fuck those kids i know it's it's, (laughs) 
it's hard to be so down on my generation because that's not, I don't think that that's an accurate representation of, of millennials. And I think that personally, I, I like to take an individualistic approach to things, but, um, it can be said that we're in a period of like hypersensitivity and, uh, a, a huge degree of entitlement for a lot of things. And, uh, I think permaculture in, in, in many ways is, is a humbling and is a part of it's, it helps us to figure out where we actually should be. Mm. Um, it kind of puts you in your place, but in a hopeful way, because right. the, the modern environmentalist movement is so anti-human. It's like, I can't, I can't get into it. It's mm. just, I never wanted to identify as an environmentalist because it always removes humans from the equation. Mm, and it's like, interesting point. Right. It, and, and permaculture like the phrase put you in your place in, yeah. a, in a positive sense. Sure. Cause our place is within a system. Yep. I've been reading recently, uh, James C. Scott. He's a professor at Yale. Uh, I'm blanking on the name of the book I've been reading, but he makes a, a really interesting point, which is that hunter gatherers, we, we view them as these sort of, inert presence in mm-hmm. in the landscape right mm-hmm. they just they, they didn't touch the landscape they left <laughs> things in a pristine condition and yeah. he's showing how the most recent research is showing is demonstrating quite clearly that they manage the landscape quite intentionally with mm-hmm. burns so that they would create um uh sort of ecosystem where deer would flourish and Mm -hmm. and other plants and animals that they were hunting so they were in the amazon now they're taking satellite uh, shots of the amazon they're showing all these irrigation trenches and Mm -hmm. massive uh, management of the landscape so the idea that hunter gatherers were just living lightly on the land isn't quite accurate they were managing it in a way that was beneficial to them, but also wasn't destructive of the landscape. Yeah, they're ecological engineers. Right, exactly. Yeah, they they were steering succession in their favor, but also in the favor of everything else. Right. And to me, that's human purpose on the and planet. And keeping human population low enough that they weren't destroying yeah. everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, through all different rituals and practices for that including purpose. infanticide yeah, which so, nobody wants to talk about yeah let's not romanticize or fetishize <laughs> those cultures because they yeah. had their faults too um but yeah there's there's a growing um wealth of information about how foraging societies and horticultural societies managed the ecosystems that surrounded them tremendously and here in this in this region it was oak savanna Mm. And many of the oak trees that we interact with now are remnants of of oaks that were selected from the largest acorns 700 years ago and planted or 500 years ago. So they were finding the best acorns with the lowest tannins that needed the least processing and planting them mm. in areas right. of high water table. You know, right. So, right. So they were they Very were working towards that uh, improvement of a, a tree crop. Yeah. While also simultaneously they're burning the landscape, which is increasing the seed bearing um, crops like the chia sages and the different grasses around here um, and creating really fresh and tender forage for mammals. Right. Um, So back then, I mean, we had it was more than just mule deer. I mean, the mammal biomass in this region was way higher than it is now. Now we have an oversupply of vegetation and a lack in in 
animals to manage it, which mm. is which is part of the whole fire cycle that's happening here. Um, and and it's a it's a deep rabbit hole to get into with it, but it's so fascinating just to just to at least understand that humans have a role here, and we're not just right. like inherently a scourge on the planet. Yeah, it's such a question of scale. You know, yeah. it's seven billion. That's a scourge, mm. but. 100 million we could live in paradise right did you hear about how um the planet is actually greening because of the surplus co2 in the atmosphere Mm -mm. so nasa put out this this um study where they've been taking images of the planet from above of course and and it appears to be getting greener and they've they've calculated that there's an increase in biomass on the planet Mm. because photosynthetic potential has gone up due to industrial carbon Right. So to me, it's like, okay, if we've been evolved to be hominids that have this potential for all this high technology and to sort of distribute ourselves across the planet, we're at this point now where nature or the inherent intelligence within nature has evolved us to this point to be so intelligent and stupid at the same time that we pull all this fossilized carbon out from deep under the earth and blow it up into the atmosphere so that mother nature can sequester that and make it part of the terrestrial carbon cycle and build the deepest topsoils in living history. We're being used in some capacity because if we die, nature's going to carry on and it'll have deeper topsoils for it. Yeah. Although the, the oceans will be pretty fucked up. We'll see. It's hard to say, you know, it's well, like acidification and I mean, yeah, yeah, who knows? I mean, so much of what is alarming about the environmental crisis is in terms of how it affects humans. Yeah. So well, it's all human. Yeah. Centric. If you pull that out and just say, OK, wait a minute, take humans out of the equation. Like, for example, uh, one thing that really concerns me is uh the slowing of the the um, Gulf Stream, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Now, Makes last time the Gulf Stream stopped, there was an ice age mm-hmm. and the origins of agriculture, pretty much. Right. You know, modern sort of not modern, but intentional agriculture. Yep. Um, but you know, hey, maybe that's not such a bad thing. Maybe an ice age over Europe, you know, works for the planet in yeah. other ways. It's yeah, it's running its own show. Yeah, it's running us. It's <laughs> the point of what I was saying is like right. we we're being evolved constantly yeah. by the complexity of ecology to be a servant to it. That's that's the way I look at it. Hmm. Um, I look at it like we're a servant to technology, hmm. uh, which. I don't know. That depresses me. Yeah, that that would depress me too. <laughs> like we're we're sort of um, what's the word? Like a caterpillar to a butterfly, a larva stage. Mm-hmm. We're like a larva stage for technological life. Uh huh. And then once it like breaks out of its shell, human shell, then it discards us and flies off into the right. Cosmos. Yeah, I've heard I've heard this this talk of like AI advancing to a point where it we become irrelevant. Right. But I wonder about like how what is its capacity to maintain the energy systems that prop up that sort of technology like i I don't it's hard to say but i feel like mother nature could just smash any computer that's right that's what i feel innately and i i don't know enough about ai to make a clear conclusion i don't think anyone does at this point but my understanding is that sort of the 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 horizon point is when 
you have machines that fix and create and design machines. Mm -hmm. So the humans are taken out of the cycle. Right. So then an asteroid smashes the computer, but that's all right because other robots come in and reassemble it and, you know, build a newer one because they're constantly testing and evolving. And so they become their own life force. Yeah. And it, it transcends the, the fury of nature in some respects. I guess. Yeah. That's, that's a dystopian future for sure. Well, from a human perspective, yeah, for For them, it's like, thanks. Yeah. You know, thanks for the memories. Yeah. So let, let's get to the economics. I wanted to, you know, I don't want to just gloss over that. Um, because a lot of people say, okay, look, permaculture sounds great. It makes sense. It's beautiful. Blah, blah, blah. It's healthy, but come on, we can't feed the world with permaculture. Mm -hmm. Is that a legitimate criticism or are there, uh, do half the people on earth need to disappear for this to make sense? It's, it's a legitimate criticism for sure, because there's not enough data on it. Hmm. I mean, it's just getting to the point where the, the one facet of permaculture, because I haven't even really defined what permaculture is yet, but the one facet of it, regenerative agriculture is what can feed the planet and hopefully stop the negative effects of of climate change if it's applied now and we have a consumer revolution that steers all capital towards those ends. Um, But permaculture is a ethics-based design system that's, you know, that's what it is. And the ethics are care of earth, care of people, and setting limits to population and consumption. So anything that falls in that context could be considered as permaculture. So You've got the food production side, you've got the social side of it, the political side, you've got the, the energy and resource side of it, you've got the, the housing element of it. So it's a connecting system. Mm. It's not a food production system, but that often is the entry point for most people. I see, right. But regenerative agriculture, I think, is becoming more of a, a term that people are familiar with. And I think that does have the potential for sure. And um, the UN did just come out saying that small-scale organic agriculture is the most likely way that we're going to continue feeding the planet. Mm. Um, And it's also helpful to know that a large portion of the planet does still feed themselves from small-scale polycultural systems. um, And they work through time. What we're experiencing now can feed the world for now, but you know, the, the large-scale agricultural systems, at least in the Midwestern United States, can only maintain the land that they're farming on for 20 years before it's completely unusable. And we're yeah. run, I mean, there's only so much land. We know that. Yeah. Um, and the fertilizers that are being used are mined from different areas, and they're also mostly oil-based. And as that resource dwindles, if it does, um, we're going to have a dramatic reduction in fertilizers and the implements to harvest these vast acreages of corn, soy, wheat, and potatoes. It's like the million-dollar combine harvester with the GPS navigation and the air conditioning and the Sirius XM radio, that's not going to work in the future. That, that could be a very realistic potential for us. So we have to figure out a buffer at mm. the very least. And... I think that it's going to take a while to develop these systems because they are perennial inherently. They are supplied by plants that take 
quite a while to establish, but once they reach their productive mm. peak are tremendously productive, way right. more than, than, you know, an acre of wheat. So, um, I think that there's a lot, a lot to be still explored with it. Do you worry about like post-apocalypse, everybody coming and crashing on your farm? Well, yeah. I mean, that's what everyone says when they leave here. <laughs> that's know? what I was it thinking. It makes me reconsider my opinions about the Second Amendment. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. If I had a place where like, okay, I, I could live here, I could support my family and maybe a few friends, I definitely would have like, you know, machine gun yeah. nests by the driveway. Well, I had a dream about that Did recently. You? Recently, yeah. I had this nightmare that, you know... I had spent the last decade building something that could sustain myself and my family and anyone useful that I wanted to have come stay here. But people arrived here that, that hadn't eaten in a week. Right. And they were much more willing to be violent, violent and aggressive than I was. So they came and stole everything. And it's like 10 years of work gone. Right. And it, I woke up from that dream like, I've got to be prepared for that. That's another part of the system. The defense yeah. of the system is, a, yeah. it's all context-based design. And if you want to foresee that context in the future, then you have to be ready for it. But can you be ready for it? You know, when you were talking there, the image that came to my head was like you had built a boat and the floods came and you're on your boat with your family and a couple of friends and the water's full of desperate drowning people. Yeah. They're clambering onto the boat. Mm -hmm. There's not much you can do. Right. You know? Yeah, I've entertained a lot of different scenarios about leaving here for a little bit and then coming back. And one of the things that's hopeful, though, is that many of the crops that we're growing here, most people wouldn't even recognize as food. Right. It's like when we tried that honey locust pot earlier, no one's going to eat that off the tree. Right. They're going to be looking for oranges and apples and avocados, and they might kill the animals and eat them. Right. But most of the productive staple crops are in the form of pods, nuts, and, you know. It's, it's, so you just hope they don't kill anybody and they don't burn it down and let the marauders run through, and then you, there'd be stuff here that they wouldn't have recognized and you can recover. Because yeah. there probably would be a wave. I mean, if that happened, there'd be a wave of desperate, crazy people from Los Angeles, like exactly. rippling out like a rock fell in a river or something uh, <laughs> and they'd all die I've in the desert. It, yeah. yeah. Well, the thing to the thing to know is that when people are in that state, they don't have a lot of energy or the capacity to think very rationally. Mm. If I'm well fed and calm and practiced with self-defense or you know weapons or whatever it's like i have such a tremendous advantage over any of those people because i can see them coming they right. don't know where i am they don't know anything about the landscape and they're fucking out of their mind already it's like and you know dead zombies make great fertilizer yeah you can compost them and <laughs> this is taking a dark turn yeah, yeah huh? i know i don't usually go there permaculture is supposed to be positive exactly we're but happy hippies here we're not we're not preparing for that you ever heard of finhorn yeah you've been there i haven't been there it's an interesting place i i had sort of a life-changing experience there um for people who don't know finhorn is a new age center in where is it it's up near Loch Ness it's right yeah. off the North Sea mm -hmm. 
And you reminded me of it when you're talking about the guy in Jordan mm-hmm. uh, greening the desert. Yeah, Jeff Lawton. Yeah, because there was you shouldn't be able to grow anything in the soil it's full of, it's not even soil it's sand mm-hmm. essentially and it's full of salt because the right. you know wind blowing in from the ocean there and and these um the story is this royal air force uh officer world war ii veteran um was married to a woman who started having visions I don't know if they were dreams or waking visions or whatever. And a voice was sort of telling her, sell, sell your house, sell mm-hmm. this house. And, and he loved her and thought it was crazy. But if it would, you know, like the voice said to sell that. So they sold the house. They bought a camper. And the voice was like, go north. And okay, we'll go north, honey. And they went north. And this is like 1960, 61. And the voice directed them to this. They arrived in this um, like camper, you know, place, a mm-hmm. campground, but like for campers, yeah. you know. And um, and the voice was like, "Okay, stay here, plant a garden." Hmm. And this was 1961, I think. And they're like, what, "Plant a garden? What the fuck are you talking about? This is a fucking beach. These are yeah. dunes, you know." And they planted a garden, and these crazy vegetables started coming out. Mm. These. And um, some weird shit was going on. And so then they ended up buying the campground and it turned into this place. It's like Esalen. Mm-hmm. And it was founded in 1962. Yeah. I remember because that's when I was born. And I, so I went there. I actually met them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, Eileen Katie Caddy, something like that. Mm-hmm. And her husband, ex-husband at that point, um, came to visit that same week when I was there. Mm-hmm. He died shortly after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's this whole thing. It's like Esalen. They've right. got, you know, the hotel. And, yeah. 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 But it became famous among, um, um, who are the scientists who study plants? Botanists? Botanists, yeah. Horticulturalists. Uh, horticulturalists. Because they were growing, like, uh, cabbages the Giant size of cabbage. basketballs right. and, you know, and no fertilizer. And this is the place where the idea that you could sing to your plants and the yeah, plants talking respond. to the plant Davis. Yeah, all exactly. All that stuff. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was really interesting. I was there, I was sort of searching. I was uh, probably 29 or 30 mm-hmm. and I dropped in and, um, just wanted to see it cause I'd read about it in a book called the secret life of plants. Mm-hmm. You ever read that? Mm-hmm. It's an interesting plant, yeah. interesting book. I think Stevie Wonder named an album after that book. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah. There's a place that kind of reminds me of that. I haven't been there, but I've met some of the members of it. It's called Tamara in Portugal. Yeah, yeah. Cassie and I have been invited there many times. We've never gone because um, we had already left Spain when they started um, reaching out to us. Mm-hmm. Is it a, do they do permaculture as well? I know they're very Absolutely. much into like open relationships and yeah. challenging traditional relationship structures. Yeah, they've created a pretty interesting uh, land base there. You know, they've got interesting social experiments going on, but I'm really fond of what they're doing with the landscape. It's, mm. it's Portugal, so it's very similar to this um, climate. And... They hired a guy named Sepp Holzer, who's this like Austrian mountain farmer mm. who at the same time in the early seventies, when Bill Mollison was coming up with permaculture, Sepp was doing his thing in his high elevation farm where he's building all these terraces and spring fed ponds and these elaborate organizations of productive plants and livestock. And 
so it was almost like there was this this consciousness evolution at the same time across the planet because there was like Masanobu Fukuoka in Japan who came up with it and wrote the One Straw Revolution and Bill in Tasmania and Australia and then Sap over there and a few others. Small is beautiful. Yeah. Around that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, so Sep came, they hired him to design Tamara, which was in the middle of a, a dying oak savanna. Mm. And he built this massive reservoir and it was like, everyone was like, that's insane. Like that's never going to fill up. And it took like two or three years to fill up with seasonal rainfall. And now they've got this lake. It's like Lake Tamara and all their water comes from it. And then they've had surplus now because it's full and it's hydrated the rest of the landscape. And there's a spring trickling out of the bottom of it. So now they've got all these other ponds in succession below it. And the, the wildlife have, you know been utilizing it as as refuge and i'm sure if they if a biologist went out there and did a survey it would be tremendously higher than the rest of the surrounding landscape so and then they plant all their productive crops right on the edge of the pond Mm. or or the lake and it's all sub-irrigated right it's all natural wicking from the soil so they they like cracked that code real quick yeah um so, so they're not even running irrigation channels. It's just plant it just around wicks. the lake. Yeah. I'm sure they have some water distribution systems. But, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they've created the foundation for the type of culture that can then have the free time to examine the other things they're doing on a social level. Because they're not, they can take showers as long as they want. You know, they, the they don't have guilt behind them. Somewhere. Yeah. yeah, it removes guilt when you can work with nature to create such abundance. Yeah, that you're in a state of surplus always. See, that's something that people I think misunderstand about these approaches to life. They think that it's like dirty hippies because you can never take a shower. You mm-hmm. know, they don't understand. No, you can have the most luxurious shower of your life. You showed us your your uh bathroom out here your your he's got a massive tub open air beautiful water heated by compost you probably have some solar stuff going on as well like it's luxury it's way more luxurious than in your apartment you know <laughs> That's there's, for sure. there's no doubt about it yeah. you know you're under the stars and the moon and the fresh air blowing through it's it's the highest luxury to live this yeah. way yeah. Yep. I remember there's a a Werner Herzog film uh called Rescue Dawn uh, about this guy um who shot down over Laos in the Vietnam War and I think it was played by Christian Bale. Mm-hmm. And he escapes from the POW camp and he's starving and he's with this other guy and they find a snake and they bang the snake on the rock and and I remember reading that like Werner Herzog actually made them eat a dead snake like on camera mm-hmm. and they're like biting into this dead snake and, ah, and it's this horrible scene and That's awesome. you know it creates this image of like you know how brutal you would be if you were starving and you'd eat anything anyway then the guy gets captured it's all based on a true story mm-hmm. a memoir written by uh the character played by christian bale and he gets captured by the Viet Cong, and they're taking him uh, through the jungle to some other camp and it's like a three day trek through the jungle and the guys the the Viet Cong they make these they bend these twigs and like make a little lattice work and 
they take sap from um, a tree and they put the sap on. They're like little badminton mm-hmm. uh, rackets, mm-hmm. right? And they put sap on the racket part where the strings would be. And as they're trotting through the forest with their prisoner, they've got these things in their hands. And these big bugs are flying by. And they just reach out and and the bug sticks to it. Yeah. And then they get to the camp that night. And I'm, I'm watching this movie thinking, what the fuck are they doing? That's so weird. They're like, what do they dinner. care about? It's dinner. And, they, they've, and they've already got them like on a shish kebab. Yeah. And they put it over the fire. And they're like little lobsters. Mm-hmm. Super nutrient dense. Super sure. nutrient dense. They probably smelled fantastic. They mm-hmm. tasted great. And so this assumption we have that nature is this hostile, barren landscape of nothing that's based on ignorance Mm -hmm. and it's culturally propagated because white people don't know how to live in these landscapes so they come back with these stories of starvation and and you know destitution but if you know how to live in a landscape it's utterly luxurious and relaxing you don't need to work so hard that's an agricultural mindset it is i well i like the idea of you know half hobbs half or so it's sort of like nature can be really dangerous and and is sort of trying to kill you always in some way and if you understand it's sort of like that you got to work your tai chi with the the dangerous side and learn how to utilize that energy to structure your life in a way that doesn't constantly leave you vulnerable right and and the other side of nature the benevolent side shows you how to do that and will willingly provide abundantly but you have to be aware you can't just wander around like you know this hippie romanticizing how nature is so life-giving it's like you actually have to know some shit too um you know so that's an important distinction i think but um yeah it's i think permaculture and and this the sort of consciousness evolution that has come from it is really in to my to my mind it's the next step for humanity it's it's literally an evolutionary step Mm. like like foraging and horticultural societies moved into agrarianism this is the new agrarian future that hybridizes with what we know from our foraging and horticultural ancestry and and applies sort of the wildness and diversity of nature in a way it combines it with the orderly utility of agriculture Mm. because now i can assemble a forest of species from all over the world because Mm. now we can go all over the world and Mm. collect species and these plants have been evolved or adapted by humans for the last 10 or twelve thousand years to produce more and better tasting products and then i can assemble them like a forest so that they take care of themselves and i can go forage in that instead of trying to manage much broader acreage of of wild plants these domesticates are highly productive so I think if we have an agricultural system that is, a, it's essentially a human-centric managed ecosystem, yeah. then we can persist indefinitely. And that's, yeah. the, that's permaculture. It's a permanence in culture because of permanence in agricultural systems. Right. So that's, that's basically what brings me to a place of positivism, is I yeah. think this is actually bigger than just a different way to garden or build your house. This is like the new integration of of humanity's role on earth and how we're going to save our own asses too i think that's a great place to stop you just summed it all up beautifully plus this yurt is getting hot as i told you it sucks (laughs) thanks a lot connor uh oh hi permaculture.com all right check it out thank you Mm
Thanks again for listening. And uh, if you contribute to the podcast through Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, or in any other way, um, please stop listening now. I'd just like to speak to people who um, don't contribute to the podcast in any way. Thanks. Catch you next week. Now listen to me, motherfucker. You think I like doing this podcast? You think I'm in this because I get to hang out with interesting people and have conversations and be part of this big community of cool people around the fucking world who are all trying to do the same thing, make life better? You think that's why I do this? Fuck no, man. I'm in this for the money, motherfucker. Now send me some motherfucking money or I'm going to have my boy Maurice come out there and kick your ass. See you next week. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground.